Welcome, welcome, welcome to Armchair Expert Experts on Expert. I'm Dak Shepard. I'm joined by Madeline Padelin. Hello. Madeline Padelin. That's my new name. Yeah, it's a new name, a new <laughs> moniker. <laughs> a new moniker. I'm trying to think what form I was filling out. Maybe it was one of these school forms, like, what are your nicknames for your kids? And it's like, where would I begin? For everyone I know, I have got like 35 nicknames. Yeah. For everyone. I love a nickname. I was thinking about that on one of my walks. Like, if I had a kid, what would I name it? And then I would definitely want it to have the ability for nickname. Right, right. That's important. Yeah, you know what's really funny is, I think, as you know, I wanted for 30 years to have a child named Lincoln. I I thought it was going to be a boy. Yeah. And then so I would float that by Brie all the time. And she'd go, I don't want a Lincoln because everyone would call him Link. Yeah, we do that. And what's funny is I was like, they're not going to call him Link. And yeah, that's gross. And then I call Link, Link, or all Link, Linky all the time. Yeah. And I like it. It's so funny. But before I had a person to place it with, yeah. it felt like a bad nickname. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, since we started this shindig, this public barbecue that is the <laughs> podcast, Paul Bloom was always kind of- Top of mind. Top of mind. In the Danny Kahneman list, people we had heard many times on other podcasts and just prayed we could speak with at some point. And we've done it. Paul Bloom is an award-winning psychologist who studies how children and adults make sense of the world. He has many fantastic books, Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion, Just Babies, The Origin of Good and Evil, How Pleasure Works, Descartes' Baby, How Children Learn the Meaning of Words. Most importantly, he has a new book that we talk about in depth today, right now, called The Sweet Spot. The Pleasure of Suffering, and the Search for Meaning. So cool. Yeah, his whole thing that I love about him is he takes something we commonly hold as negative or positive and challenges it, be that empathy or now suffering. Yeah. And it's a wonderfully stimulating conversation. It's a good time. It's a good time. So please enjoy one of our heroes, Paul Bloom. We are supported by Squarespace. Guys, we have a Squarespace website that's just gorgeous. That Wobby Wob, you uh, you built that yourself using all the templates, yeah? I sure did. Yeah, easy peasy? So easy. Well, the best part about Squarespace is it's an all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. You can get discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools, and you can choose from professionally curated layouts and styling options with Squarespace Blueprint. Plus, you can kickstart or update written content on any website, product description, or email with Squarespace AI. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial and save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with the code DAX. We are supported by Uber Eats. Spring is here and now you can get almost anything you need for your sunny days delivered with Uber Eats. What do we mean by almost? Well, you can't get a well-groomed lawn delivered, but you can get chicken parmesan delivered. A cabana? That's a no. But a banana, that's a yes. A nice tan? Sorry, no. But a box fan? Happily, yes. A day of sunshine? No. A box of fine wines? Yes. Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol in select markets, product availability may vary by region. See app for details. He's an I was listening to your Steven Pinker talk oh. yesterday, and all of a sudden you mentioned my name. Of course! And so 
Oh, was, yeah. I got a shout out. You'll hate this, but you know, you're on the pantheon of psychologists. You're just, you're incredible. I, you heard your name on the Pinker episode, but your name has been said, Monica. By the way, this is Monica. Hi, Paul. Monica. Hey, nice to so meet you. So nice to meet you. How many times do you think we've brought up Paul in 350 episodes? You probably came up in our first episode as like yeah. someone we want to talk to. Maybe 75, 80 times. The reason, of course, we're obsessed with you is of the many, many Sam episodes we had listened to, really you and, and Jonathan Haidt were our favorites of all time. That was like, if I wanted to recommend someone that show, like I would say, listen to Paul Bloom on that show. I love your point of view on everything virtually you talk about. So we're just gigantic fans. Oh, thank you so much. That's wonderful. And one of the things that interests me when I talk to people like you or Adam Grant or all these different people is I'm most curious why anyone goes into what they go into, okay? So I think the reason I love your work is, I could be wrong about it, but you seem to have a proclivity to want to disprove really commonly held definitive statements we have, like empathy is great, prejudice is bad. And I have the same proclivity, and I, I know where mine comes from, and I'm curious if you know why that's an interest of yours. It is, in part, a desire to sort of debunk simple ideas that, that sort of, I think, are too simple. I think it's, it's, it's not so much that I think these ideas are wrong or I'm pushing again. I want to sort of be the opposite of what everyone else says, but I just think some things, you got to look deeper. And if you look deeper and you think really hard, like you think about kindness, and you realize kindness isn't just one thing. Or, you know, you think about suffering, and some suffering is terrible. It's just bad for you. Nothing good to be said about it. And other suffering might be beneficial or fun. And so I like looking deeper into these things. I find I kind of have a dream job in that I can look at the questions that really excite me and dive into them and then write about them and do research on them. Yeah. Could you say at what point in your career that transition happened where you had the autonomy to kind of just explore what you loved and not either make a name for yourself or find gainful employment or any of those things. Can you remember when you felt the freedom of that? I actually can. I studied language in graduate school. I was very interested in that. And I, I worked with a Susan Carey and also Steven Pinker, who was just on your show. Yeah. And I, I did work on that. I'm still very interested in that. But I was an assistant professor and a psychologist, Paul Rosen, came and gave a talk. It was about disgust and morality. What we feel is gross. What we feel is immoral. And I'm listening, and this is the coolest thing ever. And I said to myself, I wish I could study that. And it was like a year later, I said, well, what's stopping me? Mm, mm. And so I just reconfigured my lab, and I started to, to look at questions about disgust and morality. I've always done research with children, and I think what children think. And then I realized that I could just do whatever the hell I want as long as it's of some value and of interest to people and, you know, hopefully good science. And then I, f I felt I had the freedom. Yeah, and prior to that, like, what was the story you were telling yourself that this wasn't the type of thing that got funding or didn't get eyes? Or can you remember the argument in your head for why you weren't previously pursuing those? You know, it's more of a sense of you don't want to embarrass yourself. Uh, uh -huh. And if you study technical things, which I did originally in my career, having to do with syntax and word learning and everything like that, I don't want to diss that line of work. I remain very excited about it. But Nobody rolls their eyes when you tell them that. I mean, maybe some people think it's boring. But if you study why we get so upset about somebody who has sex with chickens. Yeah, mm -hmm. I love that kind of question. Well, then people are saying, is that, is that like a <laughs> scientific question? Why do people like original artwork more than forgeries? Why do people like 
BDSM. And all of a sudden, you know, you're in an area where there's a high potential for looking silly. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe I do look silly sometimes, but I find these irresistible questions. Us too. It's pretty much this whole podcast. Yeah. Definitely the fact check. There's nothing we like more. This was the recent one we came up with, uh, Monica and I. I was like, okay, you're dating someone. Let's just say, for instance, my wife, she's 41. Uh, We've been together for, I don't know, 15 years. What if she had nude photographs of herself at 17 years old? Is it okay for him to enjoy those? To look at them, A, and then B, enjoy them. Because you got to wonder if there's a victim in this scenario. I'm not, I have no position, but it's just, that's the kind of question I love asking, which is like, what is the morality of that? On the one hand, it's a question about the morality of how young is too young. And it's, it's culture. I mean, 17 is quite young in this yeah. culture, mm-hmm. less so in other cultures, other times. And then there's a cool question, which is you're looking at pictures of somebody who's now fully an adult. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I would say to some extent her consent, what she thought of it might matter. Right. But I'm a guy, so I'm innately perverted. So I was like, if I had pictures of myself at 17 naked and my wife wanted to see them, I would be thrilled with that notion. Just yeah. that she'd have any kind of interest whatsoever in me physically is, is always going to be a plus for me. I think the difficult question is, what if you yourself got aroused at pictures of yourself when you were 17? <laughs> well, Paul, I most oh, certainly would. I have a long history of being autoerotic. As, as much as I don't like my face, I have had moments of autoeroticism. <laughs> okay, let's not get bogged down in that. I guess the reason I'm asking, because I think my proclivity is, I think I grew up, well, I grew up with a mom who had, had two suicide attempts. And so, so I think for me, emotions are scary. When I was a kid, they were scary. I don't know how to tweak them. And I think for me, I got kind of obsessed with finding out what the logical fallacy that underlied this really huge reaction. And I think I've pursued that in life. And I think as a partner, I'm annoying. We were watching this show, Scenes from a Marriage. I really recommend it. It's such a deep dive into the psychology of relationships. But I found myself really identifying with the main character because he was trying to really work his wife through this issue and trying to get down to the bottom of what maybe was really going on. And I was like, oh my God, that's what it's like being married to me. I'm hoping to clutch onto some logical component we can fix so that I don't have to ever experience the very scary emotions. And I was just curious if that's your background at all without having to say anything too revealing about yourself. I'm two episodes into that show. And um, mm. you know, she, mm. she reveals her infidelity to her husband, says, I'm off to go with this guy for six months. And his reaction, this is in part an answer to your question, is totally alien to me. Which he says, well, I don't think this is right for you. Maybe you should stay for a few more weeks with me. Well, I think his reaction is actually hugely unnatural. It would be rage, devastation, shock, but he was so analytic. Uh-huh. And I aspire towards being that analytic in my life, but no. The short answer is absolutely not. Yeah, I watched that episode last night. Oh, you did? Yeah, I just put it on to like go to sleep. And then, of course, I watched the whole thing and I couldn't stop. And it is something Dax would do. I mean, you also have high emotions as well. But like trying to figure it out, just using logic alone and removing the emotional portion, which is, is... is removing a portion of reality. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that it's all that helpful, but it was crazy watching that. A full life requires both. I have made a lot of arguments when it comes to moral decisions and certain things, we should be more rational. We should be less emotional or hot-headed. 
And I think that's true for like policy, but for everyday life, when you're with somebody you love, when you're with your kids, when you're, when you're you know, your partner, or with, with somebody you hate, I think emotions are important. They motivate us, they drive us, and there is a kind of wisdom to it. I agree. And so having said all that, I find myself often trying to point out to generally my side of the political spectrum, which is like you're blasting people with facts and you're ignoring that they're experiencing a very emotional feeling of fear and facts don't really combat fear. <laughs> yeah. And so much of what goes on in political battles, particularly online, isn't really about the facts. It's about, I want my group to like me. I'd rather have friends than be right. And yeah. So when you see people do say outrageous political things, just you know, totally unmoored from facts, so much of it is saying, "I want to be a good Republican. I don't want to lose all my friends. I want to be a good liberal." You know. Yeah, I was listening to you and Sam talk recently, and oh, you guys were discussing whether or not the handshake would would disappear post COVID, and you said you could imagine a scenario where a liberal tries to shake someone's hand and gets shamed, and then a Republican <laughs> tries to bow to another one and gets beat up over it. And I was like, you know, those are funny examples and also very much within the realm of possibility. <laughs> yeah. There was New York Times had some polling data about what Democrats and Republicans thought about COVID. And the point is that their beliefs were extremely inaccurate, exactly in line with their political prejudices. So the Democrats radically overstated how dangerous COVID is for kids, just by like a factor of 100. Well, the Republicans radically understated the dangers of, of COVID in certain situations. They always just like, just like the flu. And they were both wrong in exactly the way their political party said to be wrong. So one thing I want to talk largely about the sweet spot, but of course, I would regret not just getting two cents on empathy, because I, I just love your descriptions of it. I love you pointing out what that really means and how one would really truly behave in a situation if they were truly empathetic. So if you went in mind, why did you study empathy? What got you curious about it? I was really interested in the role of emotions in moral decisions and when they could lead us astray. Because a lot of people, for instance, who are very uh, negative, who think uh, gay sex is immoral, say, well, it's disgusting. And that's what drives their arguments in part. And so I argued and had research on this, suggesting that disgust is a really unreliable moral guide. Maybe you're disgusted by this or disgusted by that. You shouldn't let it sway you when it comes to right and wrong. And I found that everybody agreed with me to denigrate disgust as a moral guide. But then I wondered, well, what else could this argument be extended to? And then I, I went to empathy. And the more I looked at it, the more I thought that there's so, much, so many better ways to make moral decisions that are more fair, less biased, less cruel than empathy. So putting yourself in another person's shoes and feeling what they feel is really great as a source of pleasure, as a source for intimate relationships. But I argued it's a train wreck when it comes to moral decisions. We're much more likely to feel empathy for people who look like us, for people who share our views, who speak our language, who are close to us. It's very hard to feel empathy for distant strangers. And more than that, empathy is often weaponized. If I want you both to hate some group, the standard thing is I'll tell you about the victims and the terrible things they did and get you all energized. And there's evidence from both the lab and real life that the more empathy you feel towards a suffering group, the more you want to hurt the people who cause the suffering. Mm. So empathy is often used as a tool to get people riled up. And I think we're just better off with, with compassion, with love, with cost-benefit analysis. So yeah. that's, that's the sort of argument I was making. Well, 
you give this great example that if you saw somebody drowning and you were on the shore and or vice versa, you're drowning and there's a person on the shore that discovers you, you of course want them to rescue you. You don't want them to put themselves in your shoes and start panicking because yes. now both of you are likely to die soon. Yes, or take therapy as this classic example, which I like because it distinguishes what we call cognitive empathy, which is understanding what's going on. And that's important. We're not going to have a good relationship if I can't understand what's going on in your head. To some extent, yeah. you understand what's on my head. But we don't want the sharing of feelings. And so therapy is a good example. If I go to my shrink and I'm deeply anxious and freaking out, I don't want her to start freaking out and get anxious. I don't want to burst into tears. I've heard burst into tears. And we're saying, oh, I, just want. I want somebody who wants to help me to understand me and to care about me. But sometimes if you're anxious, you want to be met with calm. Yeah. And if you're miserable, you want to be met with somebody who's kind of a bit more positive. And so I said empathy is good for intimate relationships, but not always. Even in that case, you see that if you're with somebody you love and they're in trouble, you kind of don't want to give back the same thing they're sending out. You almost become codependent. Right. Like you're matching yes. their emotional state and now both of you are fucked. That's right. Well, I think the other thing that probably took people aback was the notion that in general, sociopaths probably track a deviation higher on the empathy scale or quite often do. Is it psychopaths or sociopaths? A sociopath was just a politically correct term for psychopath. <laughs> they oh, okay, okay. Up for a while. <laughs> psychopath just sounded too bad. And <laughs> honestly, of all the groups you have to worry about offending, don't worry about psychopaths. They're okay. <laughs> True. This gets us back to understanding other people's minds. So I said it's really good if you want to, like, for friends to get along, to make the world a better place. But it's a form of intelligence. And like any other sort of intelligence, it could be used in all different ways. So you're exactly right. Some people who are psychopathic in their behavior, the worst people in the world, are extremely good at understanding what other people think and feel. Uh, seducer, con man, torturer, even a schoolyard bully is often really sense, really figures out what he could say or do to make the other kid cry. Oh, yeah. He's not, he's not, in, he's not stupid about other people. He's smart about other people. He's just an asshole. Yeah, he's not calling everyone dum-dum. He's like, this guy's a short, this guy is a freak, this guy, yeah. you know. I yeah. know exactly what you don't want to hear about yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You also said one time, which I thought was really interesting, if everyone wanted to take care of everyone else's kid, like if everyone had uh, the same feeling about all the children in the world, it wouldn't be productive because you almost need to care about your kids more than you care about other people's kids so you can take care of them and the other people can take care of their kids. I think there's... A really cool debate here. Suppose you think, like I do, that you really want your morality to help the most people. And I think empathy gets in the way of that. But it isn't inconsistent with partiality. And so that example is exactly right. If I would say I want to help the most people, so I'm going to divide my attention equally among a million babies. Well, that's impossible. Why don't I take care of the baby in my house? You take care of the baby in your house, you and it, and then things will work out. And the same thing, in some way, is an argument for the value of partitioning ourselves into families, into nations, into communities, where you're best equipped to help the people close to you. Yeah. So I'm not entirely against partiality. Well, it's, just, it's interesting, right? Because even though I have a political point of view, I'm a big proponent of there being two sides, right? And quite often, there's so much merit in both sides. And what you just described is kind of more of a Republican point of view, which is like, take care of your town. Like, they're, statistically, they're more likely to help an individual than donate to a group that's going to help a bunch of people, right? 
they just happen to have an approach that they believe in, do the individual, do your town, maybe, you yeah. know, the whole thing scales upward. And there's great merit to that, I think. You're pushing me on a, on a hard problem, which I've just struggled with, which is probably compared to most people, I skew very liberal on this. I'm comfortable with federal government. I'm comfortable even with some degree of world government. But I think there is a case to be made for the value of, uh, of smaller groups and smaller communities. And for me, family is my go-to example. So there's people like Peter Singer, who's a consequentialist. I have tremendous respect for him. But he thinks that to spend more time with your kid, to care more about your kid than a stranger is a moral mistake, a perfectly understandable moral mistake, but a mistake nonetheless. And that's too far for me. Yeah. I just can't believe that, that that's wrong. I've argued with Sam Harris as well. Yeah. As he's, from his more Buddhist perspective, he just says, you run into a building on, on fire and you could save two people or save your child, save two. I can't go that far. That was a fascinating debate, yeah, and I think it stemmed from one of his meditation practices, right, where you're kind of like praying for everyone or thinking of everyone yeah. on the planet. But it ignores the reality of limited resources, I think. Well, you know what's funny is I get to live with it real hands. So I'm in AA, right, and it's a very hands-on experience. I have one guy call me, maybe I sponsor five guys, maybe 10 people have my number, and I'd like to think that of this over 16, 17 years that I've helped save a handful of lives. My wife is tackling like Uganda and it's amazing. It truly is. But our scopes are so vastly different. And then as I watch her allocate resources versus how I allocate resources, it can be a point of debate. Yeah, I think that's the hardest moral question that we have to struggle with day to day, which is of our limited resources, how much go to ourselves? I mean, I spend a lot of my energies trying to improve my own life. So, sure. does, so, does, so does every functioning person. How much to those close to you? And then how much to total strangers? And it sounds like between you and your wife, the math works out somewhat different. And, it's hard, and different people might work better with some balance or another. But it is such a difficult problem. I think, and here I would agree with someone like Peter Singer or, and Steve Pinker as well, that the human mistake has always been too much for me, my family, my group, and not enough for other people. I think real sign of moral progress is recognizing, at least at an abstract level, that people in a faraway country matter just as much as the people you love. Yeah. I totally agree, but I would just counter, and again, this is anecdotal, this is my own personal experience. I needed to get myself on firm footing and have my needs met so that I could then extend out. And I feel like I really have, like, I think I have people now in my life that think I'm very generous. And I'll just point out, I was not generous in my 20s when I lived in a one-bedroom apartment. Like, I couldn't have been generous. All this stuff affords me to be more generous and more thoughtful. Again, it, the debate over food, it's like, I'll get someone on here telling you how to eat. Well, if you've got three jobs and three kids and you're a single parent, guess what's not on your fucking radar, whether the shit's organic or not. So I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that situation. And I think that can really be graphed or mapped onto a lot of things. It's like, how much bandwidth do you have left? So I think it might be more productive in the end. You might be better off by first tending to your thing so that then you can kind of spread everywhere else. Your point about resources is right. It's not that people with a lot of resources are better people than people with less. Not, and that's not what you're saying. Right. But if you are starving to death, if you are struggling to stay alive or to keep those you love alive, you're just not going to have much left 
Well, if you have a lot of resources, and I think the three of us certainly do relative to 99% of people on earth, there becomes an obligation even to use the excess and not just for our families and friends. Yeah. And I just want to make my point crystal clear. I'm actually arguing I'm the exact same scumbag. I just have more now. Like I didn't evolve as a, I'm not a better person. I just now I'm in a position where it's not painful for me to be generous. But you're framing that in a funny way because what that means is you were always a good person. You just didn't have the resources early on to, to oh, use that goodness. That's a great glass half full take on it. I like that. <laughs> I was always uh, waiting to blossom into a nice person. <laughs> no, well, well, real scumbags don't have people who think you're a great guy and who, who you help. So you were a saint in hiding. Oh, my God. I love this analogy. That's too much. That's too much. <laughs> yeah, that's a little extreme. <laughs> we've gone, we've okay. gone a little bit, a bit of overkill. <laughs> what were you just about to say, Monique? I think if you really look at the big picture of, yeah, I'll take care of my kids, you take care of your kids. And that way, everyone will be taken care of. The reality is that's not true. Some people aren't taking care of their kids. I wish that could be the case, but it's it's just not. So I think you have to look outward to take care of those who aren't being taken care of. That's right. I've heard people say, well, everybody just takes care of their own. But I think that's ultimately a selfish and kind of savage view because some people, like you're saying, don't have anybody to take care of them. Yeah, I agree. And this is why I'm a proponent of both parties. And this is kind of a centrist claim, but I think that forget about Democrats and Republicans, both sort of a liberal worldview and a conservative worldview have their strengths. And I think one of the good things about living in a, in a society that aspires towards democracy is they could fight it out and compromise. And ideally, we keep best of both features. So there's even some psychological work suggesting that Democrats or liberals tend to have a bit of a larger moral circle. They encompass more things, like they care maybe about, about animals, say, mm. or the environment of people far away, while conservatives on average might have a tighter moral circle, zooming more in on family and community. But yeah. they're both of value in different ways. This is off topic, but I just wanted to say it because I was watching your TED Talk, and I'm someone who thinks they're aware of all these different ways prejudice reveal themselves. It's a great TED Talk. I really urge everyone to watch it. It's really great, and it's on prejudice. But, man, you showed a slide that kind of – it didn't shock me, but also I was just like, oh, fuck, right. Which was, Monica, they sold – as an experiment, they sold a set of baseball cards on eBay. And in the photo, a white hand's holding each card. Mm -hmm. And then they have the exact same cards for sale on a black – Oh, hand is holding the cards, and they, as you would guess, fetched far lower bids. Wow. That jumped out at me, that one. It was a very clever study. It was done by a friend of mine, Mazarin Banaji, and colleagues. And it was clever because a lot of psychology experiments on bias have serious problems, and they're very unrealistic. And, and I think we should be very skeptical about some of the claims about implicit bias. Um, yeah. you know, we could talk about that. But this was a clever study because people didn't, you know, they didn't know they were in a study. And I don't think they were a bunch of KKK white supremacists. (laughs) Right. They just saw a darker hand and said, well, you know, I can't trust this person as much and so on. And this is interesting because it's an example of the duality present within us, which is on the one hand, we're like that. We have all sorts of biases. Some of them are okay. Like I said before, I'm happy to be biased, love my sons more than strangers. Some of them are not okay. I wouldn't be happy to find out that I trusted white people more than other people. And when it's not okay, we are rational enough to say, hey, let's try to fix this. And this is what distinguishes us from every other creature, the ability to say, this is the way it feels to me, but I think it's wrong and I want to take steps to stop it. Okay, so 
impartiality, I think that was kind of where we got to in that TED Talk. You lay out the pinky scenario, which is wonderful. Can you walk us through that a little bit? And then I just want to give a personal debate I get ensnared in. This is the little finger thing. Yeah, I'm sorry. David little finger. Yeah, yeah. Adam Smith is pointing out that I'm pushing something I'd call rational compassion as a way to be a good person. And you can say, well, why not just rationality? Why not just intelligence? Adam points out that from the standpoint of rationality, there's no reason to favor him losing his little pinky finger as opposed to killing thousands of people. I mean, imagine you had a psychopath in front of you. A psychopath said, I like hurting people. I like causing misery. And you said, well, man, you know, I'm going to argue you out of it. And you can't. If he doesn't accept that people have value, there's no ways to argue him out of it. And the conclusion here is, I think rationality is absolutely totally critical for being a good person, being a good life. But you also need to care. And that's this sort of separate thing. Yeah, he says, like, the first layer is the, the man learns that 100,000 people died in this accident. Uh, in a faraway country, he goes to bed just fine that night. Then he learns that in his country, something happened. He kind of goes to bed. Then he learns he's going to get his pinky cut off in the next morning. Yes. He can't sleep. Mm -hmm. So it's like innately he cares more about that than everything yeah. else. But then yet you can think your way through it and you can confront that natural. Right. So emotionally, if I read that a thousand people are going to die in some country, honestly, okay, some faraway country, I, I see that stuff all the time. Yeah. If I got upset by it, I'd never get out of bed. But if you told me that tomorrow that somebody's going to snip off my pinky finger, I'd spend a whole night thinking, oh, my God, this is so. So it's far more emotional to me. But then if you put to me the question, which is worse? Yeah. It's worse a thousand people die. Yeah. And it's that, it's that other step. Smith goes on and said, conscience, reason. It's a soft voice of rationality that I think when we're at our best is what we listen to. Yeah. The time that I'm in that conversation is I happen to be against the death penalty. Who cares? People will often respond like, really? What if your daughter was killed? And I go, I would shoot him myself. But I don't think someone who's lost a daughter should be writing policy. <laughs> like, I would be the absolute wrong person in that moment to be making policy. That's exactly right. And that's sort of what if your sort of argument is how I think rotten people push rotten policies. Like, I'd say, uh, I have no problem with immigration. And then they say, let me tell you a story of an illegal immigrant who snuck in and raped somebody. Now, what do you think? Right. Well, the better me says, well, let's see what the numbers are. Are immigrants more likely to commit crimes? They are not, and so on. And let's look at it from a sort of cold-blooded, but kind cost-benefit analysis. But you know you're in the presence of somebody trying to make you to do a crummy decision when he says, well, what if your daughter was murdered? Yeah. Because we don't think straight. He's trying to get you in a position where you don't think straight. Yeah, there was a terrible law being proposed in Northern California. Uh, an illegal immigrant had hit somebody uh, with their truck and a young person had been killed. And then they named the, the, the bill after the young person that had been killed. Uh, immigrant was, uh, was drunk. And it was this whole thing about immigration. I'm like, guys, this is a drunk driving issue. Yeah. Like, you can't yeah. possibly conflate the two. Bills <laughs> named after dead children tend to be oh. terrible. <laughs> Generally, Horrible probably loss. not objective as they should you don't, be. You, you don't see people at their reason best. You have these situations where people get punitive. And they get yeah. punitive even if it makes the world worse. Mm. I know. Yeah. It's very frustrating. It is. There's a study where they ask you, they tell people about a pharmaceutical company or something awful. And they say, if you put the pharmaceutical company out of business, many people will die. 
And still people say, yeah, put them out of business, punish them. Mm-hmm. And there's so much interest in like, let's punish the bad person, even if it makes the world worse. It's a very human appetite. But again, yeah. I feel it. I think we all feel it, but we shouldn't. We should try to sort of step back and say, well, what will cause the most flourishing, the best life? Now, I don't want you to panic when I bring up this example because it'll be coming out of my mouth. So you won't get quoted. You won't get canceled. But I find myself using that argument with the Michael Jackson debate. It's like the man was a monster. Absolutely. Should his music go away, which is on any given day, probably 600,000 human beings listen to Beat It and it makes their day wonderful? Like, is that what we want to do is deny all those people who are enjoying the product to punish him who's dead? (laughs) No, if he were alive and we're talking about punishing him or discouraging this behavior. He's not smiling down from heaven thinking, I, I beat the system. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> They're still listening. <laughs> um, but oh. with that said, I think it's also okay for people personally to be like, I can't listen to this. This reminds me of this. Yuck, I don't like it. You totally know, I agree. Think it's just a personal choice. Yeah, for some people, they can no longer enjoy the music, yeah. for sure. And those, I don't think those people should be forced to listen to it. But if they're on an 80s pop hit station, you know, they might yeah. want to pick another station because he's likely to come up. In general, I agree. I tend to lean very much in the direction of sort of freedom of expression, really freedom of expression for, in the arts, for, including for people who are terrible people. But Monica, you're exactly right. The freedom of expression and freedom in general includes saying, I don't want to ever see a Polanski film. I don't want to listen, mm-hmm. listen to this music. I don't want to look at this artwork. That includes that too. And even yeah. trying to persuade other people is terrible. Yeah. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. We are supported by ZipRecruiter. Are there some fantastic concerts coming to your city this summer? Mine too. In fact, Anderson Pack's playing at the Hollywood Bowl. I can't wait for Ooh, it. Ooh, that's exciting. If you want to be sure to see your favorite artist, you need to jump on it right away. I've already DM'd him saying, yes, I got to be in that front row. When you want the best, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. It's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. So what's the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. Got your eye on a rock star candidate? ZipRecruiter's invite to apply feature lets you cut the line. Once you review ZipRecruiter's list of the most qualified candidates for your job, you can easily invite your top choices to apply to encourage them to apply sooner. Amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. We are supported by Squarespace. Guys, we have a Squarespace website that's just gorgeous. That Wobby Wob, you uh, you built that yourself using all the templates, yeah? I sure did. Yeah, easy peasy? So easy. The best part about Squarespace is it's an all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. You can get discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools, and you can choose from professionally curated layouts and styling options with Squarespace Blueprint. 
Plus, you can kickstart or update written content on any website, product description, or email with Squarespace AI. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial and save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with the code DAX. We are supported by BetterHelp. Listen, I understand that sometimes you want to keep things to yourself, process your emotions in your own time. But if you keep everything bottled up, it can have some serious consequences. I have therapy on Saturday. I'm really looking forward to it. I had therapy this morning. Yeah, you did. Yeah, and it put me in the greatest mood. We had a long, big day, and I just felt much better for having you were to... not to out you. You were a little grumpy going in. I was. I was. I was to be <laughs> Rob and sp- I received some texts. Yeah, I was morning. locked out of my therapy setting, <laughs> which is this attic. <laughs> but then you felt much better after. I felt much better, and I even made some apologies. Um, talking things out can be so helpful, and if you want a safe space for that conversation, I recommend therapy. Check out BetterHelp if you've been thinking of trying therapy. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can even switch therapists at any time for any reason for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DAX today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash DAX. So I lay out those two previous explorations of yours because, well, the tastiest thing for me is a Malcolm Gladwell book because almost every single thing starts out with, I bet you'd think it works this way. And guess what? It works this way. I get elated with that. So I kind of think that's a similar theme that you're on. It's like, oh, empathy. It's perfect. Well, let's take a look. Prejudice is horrendous. Well, let's take a look. Well, so I would argue you've done it again with the sweet spot, which is the pleasures of suffering and the search for meaning. So why did you want to do this? Is this a response to what is commonly being called now toxic positivity? Like what prompted you to explore this? So simple curiosity. I come from an evolutionary background. I think there are some behaviors that people do that are not so hard to explain. Like why do we eat food when we're hungry? Why do we pursue sex and pursue love and love our children? The details of working this out are really incredibly difficult, but they're not really mysteries. They're kind of evolution 101. But then for a long time, I've been wondering, why do people like to eat really spicy foods that make them sweat? Why do they like to hot baths and saunas? They go to dojos and gyms and get punched in the face. They train for marathons. They watch horror movies, and which is just fascinating, scaring the pants off of them and fear which is supposed to be bad they engage in bdsm of and if they don't do it in person they like read books like 50 shades of gray which is a crazy crazy bestseller and so i just was interested in that appetite for it and that got me going that that's the pleasure of suffering and then as i started to think about that i got into the idea which is actually a very old idea in established in many religions about the connection between suffering and a life full of meaning so in, in that way, I'm actually, it's a fairly traditional book. I'm just like ancient wisdom, as, as somebody would say. Yeah, I just got to tell you one. I'm talking too much because I want to impress you because you're one of my heroes. But I had a moment the other day where I was like, I can't believe I'm reading this. I happen to be reading Notes from the Underground, Dostoevsky. And, oh, yeah, yeah. And there's a goddamn chapter in there about that mathematics have come so far that basically humans will become entirely predictable. And so what I was hearing was the exact argument that, say, Sam would make about this determinism that technology is bringing on to us. And I was like, oh, this is this is a fucking human thought. We keep thinking this new technology is really the foundation of the fear, but no, it's just the fear is in us. 
Yeah, I mean, I think determinism is correct in that we're physical things, we're subject to physical law, but humans are and will be for as long as we could ever, as probably for as long as our species gone, unpredictable and erratic. We're just too complicated and too messy. Yeah. It's not a metaphysical truth. I mean, if there's a God, God could predict what we're doing, but if there isn't, we're, un we're perfectly unpredictable. Well, as we already talked about, emotion is an enormous component that I don't see that being broken down into ones and zeros at any point. Like, it, it makes very irrational things happen and whatever. I don't know. I was reading the other day, they found a particle that doesn't behave the way any particles are supposed to behave. And I was like, well, there you go. I mean, just it's endless what's not going to fit our scheme. But back to the important issue. So these things that we do, we choose to watch these movies or we read Fifty Shades of Grey. We're not doing it consciously, would you argue? Like, we're not like, oh, you know what? I'm going to experience some suffering so that I can then enjoy the peak of joy. Like, do you think there is an evolutionary component of this? Like, why do we crave that? Why do we search that out? So we're talking about pleasure now and how suffering could lead to pleasure. And I think for some of it, it's just an accident of how our brains are wired up. I think sometimes it's just contrast. We, we appreciate contrast. And then one of the quirks of that is um, that you could have an unpleasant experience that sets the stage for pleasure. I eat my really spicy food and I drink cold beer and it feels so good. The mm. bath cools down and it feels just right. Some of it is the sort of oppressive feeling of consciousness. Like one argument for BDSM is it takes you out of yourself. Same with rigorous exercise and, and martial arts. It's just if you're sparring with somebody, you're not thinking about yourself. The voice in your head has gone quiet. But... I do think some of these things are evolved appetites. And I think horror movies and tragedies and so on reflect an evolved appetite to think of the worst, to focus on worst case scenarios. I think it's, it's an adaptive appetite. I could fantasize about all sorts of good things happening to me, but I don't need to prepare for them. Oh, a big prize? Well, thank you. But bad things you want to prepare for. And I think a lot of what goes on when we enjoy these unpleasant fictions is an appetite to explore bad things. What am I going to do when everything goes to hell and there's no law enforcement and everything, I'm on my own? Well, we relive that in a lot of movies. What am I going to do if my family dies? What am I going to do if, if I lose my job and become destitute? And we'd like to scratch at that itch. Yeah. Do you think there's any argument to be made that for the first 150,000 years we were here, we had a bunch of very real tangible threats around us at all times. We had real food scarcity. We had real marauders, all these things. And that as our life has become so predictable and comfortable that we have all this wiring that needs some kind of attention. I've struggled with that. And, and if the question comes up is, our appetite for masochistic pleasures, is it part of being sort of the fat, lazy, entitled West where we have no concerns and so we just seek out pain because we don't get any of the sort we're supposed to normally get? It may be true, but a lot of the phenomena I discuss in my book seem to be pretty universal. And in fact, even in places that are very poor, often there are sort of gruesome rituals people participate in and violent spectacles. So I think the idea that you're saying is tempting, and I used to believe it's true, but I, I'm no longer so sure. Yeah. Maybe as far back as we, we were humans, we liked the pain in the right doses. Do you think part of that could be, I mean, I guess this is sort of akin to pleasure. We talked about this a little bit with Danny Kahneman, but don't you think we kind of seek relief, like the feeling of relief. So if you watch a movie or Squid Game, 
or whatever. And it's like, oh my God, this is crazy. And you're feeling all the emotions. At the end of it, there's a sense of relief that you're not in it. I think relief plays a big role. And one bit of relief might be what you're talking about, which is social comparison, which is, thank God, that's not me. Mm. I think another bit of relief is from the very arc of stories. This data scientist took like, I think hundreds of thousands of plot lines, put them into a computer and chugged away what the common plot is. And the way he described it is, things just get worse and worse and worse and worse, then they get better. And that's the relief you're talking about. I think a lot of stories afford us that sort of thing. I mean, my favorite example is revenge films like John Wick. You read the synopsis, they kill his dog, and they go, oh man, that's sad. And then in an explosion, he kills everybody. Oh, that sounds like fun. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's kind of wish fulfillment, that something would happen to you and it would give you license to act any way you wanted and it would be justified. (laughs) Wish fulfillment is another thing that goes on. The attraction of evil characters, the Hannibal Lecters, Satan in Paradise Lost, none of the three of us would want to be a murderous cannibal killer. But it's kind of fun to imagine that degree of power and that degree of freedom from, from society. So we indulge, or take a milder form. Who doesn't like Walter White from Breaking Bad or Tony Soprano? Yeah. yeah. I struggle with it even with real-life characters. We've talked about this a bunch. Is I'm drawn to a figure like Pablo Escobar who, yeah, without one advantage in life, wills his way into being the eighth richest man in the world. I mean, through dastardly deeds, but I'm still, I can't help but be fascinated by it. Well, we're tremendously status-conscious creatures. We constantly compare ourselves to others. And this isn't necessarily a bad thing. It could lead us to excel in the arts and sciences or just be a good person that people respect and so on. But there is a sort of shortcut to high status, and that's having everybody terrified of you. And, yeah. and so we look, we look at Escobar and our fictional character, real character, and we say, wow, this guy's at the, in some way is at the top of a status hierarchy. He's not a named professor. He doesn't have an Academy Award, but he kills people. But then even more fascinating, half the people fear him and then half the people in Medellin love him because he's also provided public housing. So it's like, oh, is this guy getting the best of both worlds? He's loved and feared. It's not a bad combination. But (laughs) ultimately, we shouldn't want to become murderous drug lords, even if we do help our community. Well, if we care about our kids, it's not a great place for them to hang out in after we've created that. We should have a parental advisory for this discussion. (laughs) Do not try the Pablo Escobar thing at home. Oh, this is going to be full of trigger warnings. It's going to be like Michael Jackson. It's going to be a spoiler alert for uh, scenes from a marriage. We might not ever get to your interview. (laughs) Uh, We haven't started yet. This is just, this is is just, that's so relieving. Tell me how it adds significance and meaning to your life. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think it's a suffering in and of itself that we want. I think what we want is meaning and purpose. I defend in the book something you could call motivational pluralism, which is we want more than one thing. We definitely want pleasure. Everybody wants pleasure. Everybody wants a cool drink on a hot day. But we also want other things. We want to be good. You're talking about the support you give to people, and that's something you want. You want to feel like a good person. And we want meaning. We want meaningful projects. The three of us are talking here because we're all engaged in a meaningful and difficult project. And it won't be meaningful. It doesn't count unless it involves suffering and strain. I know. Mm. Yeah. You, but uh, why? <laughs> well, so as I was reading all this stuff, it made me think, again, of Kahneman in the concept of the narrative self, or I don't know if that's his exact words, but I'm so fascinated with the narrative self. And I started thinking about it individually or just from my own point of view, and it's like, 
yeah, all my self-esteem, that the acts I would deem esteemable are generally things that I don't want to do or they're uncomfortable. Those are the things I'm proud of myself of. When yeah. I'm writing the story of my life and I'm in bed at night, I'm like, oh, I did nine things I didn't want to do. That gives me a really wonderful feeling, whether it's legitimate or not. I think it is legitimate. I mean, Kahneman has thought very deeply about this, and he makes this distinction, which is, you know, you can walk around with a beeper that goes off randomly, and then when it goes off, you say how happy you are. And then we can determine how good your life is by just averaging. You're happy a lot of time. You're sad a lot of time. But Kahneman says it's not really how people work. People like to think back at their past and construct a narrative, construct a sort of overall view. And to some extent, it's like we're making up a resume, a CV. And so I'll go through something really difficult and hard so I could look back on it later and say, that's what I did. That's the kind of person I am. Yeah, and I was even thinking after reading that from you that I don't ever tell a story. I've seen seals in the real life, in my real life, I don't know, 20, 30 times. I got bit by a seal one time. So if I'm really? ever going to talk about a yes, I tried to pet you, you one. You see, on that, that interested me. <laughs> yes. So I was on ecstasy with friends back when I was a drug addict, and we came across a seal on a beach here in California, and there were some people watching and looking, oh, he's up on the shore, and then I got it in my head that they're dogs, and if, if it smells you <laughs> and likes your scent, then you're free to start the cuddling. Uh, I promise you this is true. I have a huge scar on my thumb from it. And so I was getting closer and closer, and I felt like the bond was happening, and I was getting all the cues, so I held out my hand so the seal could smell it, and he took one whiff, and they went, arf, arf, and bit my hand twice. And it was really polarizing on the beach. Some people were yelling, <laughs> that's what you get, don't get close to what, and then another one, people were going, that's how they say hi. Like, some people were defending <laughs> the seal, and that's the story I'm going to tell you about my seal experiences, because it has a story there. Like, there isn't a story unless... Something like that happens. It was agony, but even then for a split second, you probably thought, man, this is going to make a great story years later. Oh, we talk about this all the time. I'll be mid-miserable experience, and as a writer and a comedian, I switch immediately to like, remember every detail. You're going to be telling this one. And it almost takes me out of the suffering. We're narrative creatures, and not everything will do. We want our stories to have meaning, to, have, to affect people, to have purpose, to have a sort of narrative structure. There's a big difference between climbing Mount Everest and standing in my study and walking around in circles a million times. They're both <laughs> extremely difficult and time-consuming and so on. But the second one is ridiculous. If I tell you that, you say, you're, you're such a loser. Um, and so, so some pursuits, and it's very hard to sort of pull this word, but some pursuits intuitively are meaningful. But those right. do require suffering. I ran a marathon a long time ago, and I remember how hard it was. But... I think back fondly because it was hard. If I was in yeah. such good shape, I just ran a marathon, whatever. I wouldn't be telling you about it now. I wouldn't remember it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So is there something prescriptive about the book? Because again, in my real life, which is I work a lot, I have a lot of jobs and I fantasize about these little pockets I'm going to get. And they pop up every now and then. Either I'm out of town filming, there's three days off in a hotel. And I start thinking a week ahead of time, like, oh, I'm going to watch that series. I'm going to order that food. I'm going to do blank, blank, blank. And always, inevitably, a day and a half into my indulgence, I'm like saturated with pleasure and I don't give a shit about any of it. And it's so, and then I get frustrated. I'm like, what is this concept I'm striving for that I don't actually enjoy when I get it? So there's something a bit prescriptive about the book. And, and your story is a good one on that line, which is, 
I think the pursuit of meaningful pursuits and suffering, suffering could be a good source of pleasure, but also just, I think, I think more generally, when you're having some difficulty and anxiety and stress, to some extent, it means you're doing the right thing. Mm. There are at least three problems with hedonism. One problem with hedonism is it's often selfish, and it's just wrong to be selfish. You should be, be doing more for others. A second problem is it's, it's often boring. Mm-hmm. And psychologists like to talk about the hedonic treadmill, which is you're really enjoying the great meals in the hotel, and then they're the same great meals, and you stop enjoying them. So you have to get better meals. There's probably some studies of the pornography trajectory of people when they enter porn. And if you overindulge, you could end up in some very strange places. Yeah. And so you get bored. I think it's better to try to do something difficult. And then the third factor, and this is a sort of from a lot of psychological studies, is pursuing pleasure, somewhat paradoxically, often makes you miserable. There are these studies where you ask somebody, how important is it for you to be happy? How much do you work to be happy? And people who say very important and a lot, when they're asked, how happy are you? They say, not much. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. Happiness and pleasure tend often are the sort of things that that are better when you don't strive towards them. Would you agree with this concept of of toxic positivity, this kind of seeming movement in self-help and some modern psychology? Yeah, I think sometimes we are both sort of as regular people, but also people in my field are just too concerned with happiness and pleasure. Yeah, nothing against happiness and pleasure. I'm a pluralist. If, if, if somebody said, I want to give those up, I'd say, oh man, don't give those up. They're great. Yeah, yeah. But too many people think that's it. That's the end of the story. And I think a life well lived and not just me. Like when you ask people, when you do the studies, a life well lived most people believe involves struggle and difficulty, positive emotions, but negative emotions too. And that's the life you look back on and you say, that was a good life. Yeah. What is the relationship between life satisfaction and money? Ah, Psychologists used to have a really unintuitive story, which is they say money doesn't matter for happiness. And people say, wow, that's amazing. And it turns (laughs) out to be total nonsense. It's exactly as you'd expect. The more money you make, the happier you are, no matter how you measure it. When you measure pleasure, satisfaction, and so on. And this is true not just for individuals, but for countries. It's not just comparison. It's that rich people in rich countries are happier than people in poorer countries. Now, one question which people do debate is when does it stop? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is what we've heard, that it plateaus and then in fact goes down at some point. It definitely has diminishing returns. Which makes sense. If you're making 20000 and then you make 40000 that's amazing. That's mm-hmm. double. If you're making 500000 and you make 520000 you don't notice it. And so it does plateau, though there's some evidence that people with over $10 million are actually happier than people with over $1 million. Oh, there's wow. There's some evidence that, that it's less of a growth. And it's not such a surprise why money would make you happy. Money buys things that make you happy, like travel, freedom from oppressive work, freedom from oppressive relationships, delicious you know, good meals. food and so, yeah. delicious meals, healthcare, which, yeah. is, which is a good one, good, good protection for your kids. And then it also, in this world, gets you status. And people like status. Yeah, we are social primates. We're social primates. And I'm not sure whether somebody with two million can buy more happy stuff than somebody with one million, but maybe they feel a bit better about themselves. And mm. security, right? Security. Knowing that it's not going to go, the more you have means the, the less likely it is that it's going to go away, that your status is going to go away, that your stuff is going to go away. That's right. And 
It varies from country to country. Money always matters, but how much it matters varies from country to country. And if you're in a place where if you run out, you're really screwed, then it's very important. It's just, it's just it'd be strange if that weren't the case. Although, could I apply your own argument to this and say that it could make your life so comfortable and easy that it does lack a sufficient amount of struggle and suffering to actually allow you to be happy? I seem to observe that uh, in my circle. I think that that's right. I think that there are some people, and this is why maybe some studies show, as you mentioned, that too much money, you could actually have a drop-off in happiness. Think, wow, I'm now really wealthy. I don't have to work. I don't have to do anything difficult. I'm just going to party and do drugs and, and hang yeah. out with people. And that's not a very good life. And then it starts to show. But I think for a lot of people, what money buys is the opportunity to do meaningful work. There are studies of meaningful jobs, and they're not all high paying, like being a member of the clergy is a very meaningful job for people. But some of the ones on the bottom, like the job that has the least meaning in life is a parking lot attendant. Mm. And nobody with a lot of money is a parking lot attendant. And a lot of people are trapped with low paying jobs. And although the Buddhists are right, you could get meaning out of anything, it's harder to do it if you have sort of a menial, unsatisfying job. And easier to do it if you have enough wealth and resources to find something exciting and worthwhile. So I believe you and I agree with you. And I'm someone who had no money and then now has a lot of money. The one thing, though, I guess I focus on probably to my detriment is that it did answer the question for me that, no, the human brain just is what it is. It is looking for more. It is looking for the yeah. next thing. And there is no getting off that treadmill, or at least in my experience. Like, you just shift the weird things you think about. It's like I used to think about, God, I wish I had a window in this apartment so it was bright enough for me to be awake. And now I think, like, God damn it, I paid X amount for these doors and the locks suck. Like, that is my nature. And I can't buy my way out of it. Yeah, my country house is drafty. You know, this yacht is, is very unstable. <laughs> the, the, the treadmill screws us all. If you're seeking happiness, the treadmill screws it all. You are not saying, I mean, there, there are some problems which are, if your kid is dying because of an untreated infection, that's just categorically worse than your yacht is smaller than your friend's yacht. But yeah, yeah. still, even people who have great wealth, they're mammals. They're going to get bored. They're going to get frustrated. Ultimately, our bodies fail us. Sometimes our minds fail us. And these resources will make you, will give you more opportunity to live a good life. But in the end, yeah, there's a ceiling on this. I think one answer is don't put too much emphasis on happiness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, here's what I'm fascinated with because I grew up in, in the Midwest, in Michigan, in a very blue collar area. And there was a concept of retirement that I ingested and I can't shake it, right? So I have this fantasy that I will get safe then I can quit, and I'm smart enough to know that that's not gonna yield the thing, but it's very hard for me to shake. I constantly am thinking like, when am I gonna retire? When am I? I'll give you a great example. I happen to know the showrunner, uh, Chuck Lorre, who created Two and a Half Men and Big Bang Theory. He has more money than God, and I stupidly said like, when are you gonna retire or whatever? And he said, I didn't move to California to get rich and retire, I moved here to write TV. Like, what are you talking yeah. about? And I was like, what a fucking great answer, and why am I caught in this paradigm? Do you have any yeah. thoughts on retirement and the whole structure of that fantasy? To some extent, it depends where you're placed. Some people have menial, unpleasant, humiliating jobs. True. And for them, retirement is a bliss. Some people yeah. might enjoy their work, but have other pursuits. 
hobbies or relationship with loved ones that are just much better. But I feel the same. I mean, I don't want to inquire into your finances, but I wouldn't be surprised if you could, if you wanted to retire this afternoon. I could, say, yeah. I'm done. yeah. So, yeah, you're right. But you're not going to. I mean, if you did retire, you'd probably start up a, a podcast. And do, <laughs> About do, retirement. You know, <laughs> maybe you're already retired. Yeah, I think a lot of laborers would agree I'm already retired, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. So I think that's kind of the way out of your paradox, which is retirement is, is a really important and, and valuable goal for people who have difficult jobs and difficult yeah. and often physically, often literally backbreaking jobs. But for people like us, I think I plan never to retire. Yeah. Yeah, I'm starting to wonder if that's more what I should be thinking about as opposed to this very interesting thing that doesn't actually map onto my life the way it would have if I stayed in that's where right. I, I grew right. up. Yeah. I want to just get into, there's one thing that you say that interests me is that people sometimes pursue physical suffering as a way to exit their emotional suffering. Yeah. I bring this up in a couple of contexts. I bring this up regarding uh, BDSM and rigorous exercise. And also, this doesn't really count as suffering, but also intense concentration, the sort that uh, Csikszentmihalyi calls flow. And I think there's different things going on in these cases. But one thing is, a lot of us find consciousness pretty oppressive. Our own voice in our heads constantly saying, how do I look? How am I sounding? I can't help thinking about what I did last month, which was really embarrassing. And I thought this thing is going to happen. In a way. And, and so you want to escape from all that. Some things like martial arts, for instance, or rigorous exercise or total focus, get you out of your, out of your own head. And that's yeah. so satisfying. Oh, yeah. People ask why I race motorcycles on the track and people, yeah. it perplexes people. And I say, it's the only thing I've ever found in my entire life that requires 100% of my concentration. If I let my mind wander for five seconds, I'm going down. And I had to go to that point to shut this fucking racket off in my head. Yes. I once got violently mugged on the streets of New Haven. And it occurred to me afterwards that during the mugging, though it was not an experience I'd recommend to people, I wasn't thinking about my book. <laughs> so there's that kind of that's like a seal story uh, <laughs> oh that's great that's interesting it's almost like the more privileged you are the more in your head you are like you have the luxury of being in your head yes a lot of people don't have the luxury of being in their head often because they're in jobs that require like 100 percent of their attention or they're maybe afraid very afraid of different situations. And in some way, I think it's an interesting question how much children are in their own heads in the same way. But at least for, for people like us, we are just in our own heads. And a, lo a lot of times that's not so pleasant. And so, mm -hmm. so getting on a motorcycle, during that period, you are just you. And you're not thinking about how you're looking and what's going to happen to you. And I would, I just can't. <laughs> Yeah, I'd love to. You just can't. There's some line from a, a dominatrix I quote in my book, something to the effect that when the whip is being shown, you can't look away from it and you can't think of anything else. Oh, wow. And that's not my thing. But, yeah. but I have some understanding for how it could have a certain appeal. Dare we get into the topic of cutting? Because I learned about yeah. cutting in a way I hadn't previously understood it in it was that you can give yourself this physical pain that'll distract you from the emotional pain, but 
Also, biologically, I, I learned that your body also then will release its version of opiate. It'll also give you some kind of a, a biochemical response yeah. that could be helpful. So is that something you looked into at all? or I talk a bit about cutting in adolescence in my book, and most of my book is making the case for suffering, for chosen suffering. Unchosen chosen suffering, suffering is a totally different thing, but chosen suffering. But cutting is a difficult thing because that's not, I think that that is connected with all sorts of bad outcomes and kids in trouble. And so the question oh, yeah. is, why do they do it? And one answer is what you're saying, which is a sort of a jolt, again, away from them, their cells. What sometimes people do when they're trying to stop and this is a therapy that's recommended, but people sometimes figure it out themselves. Like they have a rubber band on their wrists and they snap it. Yeah. There's different theories of what goes on. And one thing is the distraction theory. And another theory is it's a cry for help. Right. Let me show you what my insides feel like. If people love you, then you can just tell them I'm in trouble and no help. If people don't care about you at all, there's nothing you do to make a difference. But sometimes there's in-between cases where I'm going to hold my body hostage. This is how serious my concern is. And then there's also a theory, which I think has a bit of evidence for it, which is sometimes cutting is self-punishment. Sometimes mm. people will do damage to their body. Because remember we were talking before about punitive impulse. We want to hurt people who do bad things. Well, this could be turned inwards. And all of a sudden, I think I'm a terrible person. I'm going to punish myself. And sometimes self-harm is that sort of thing. Did you see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Of course. Oh, my God. When Leonardo's giving himself the speech in this trailer, he's so mad he, he drank too much the night before, and he's looking in the mirror, he says, if you drink like that again, I'm going to fucking kill you. Yeah. <laughs> and I, as a recovering alcoholic, I'm like, I've had that speech with myself in the mirror numerous times, and what a concept. If you do that again, I'll kill you. <laughs> Self-hatred is a real thing, and you want to hurt those you hate. Yeah. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. This episode is brought to you by Natrol. Sleep is a big deal. If you're not getting your Z's in, then it just makes everything so much more difficult, and you feel a long way from the top of your game. So every now and then, not being able to get sleep and stay asleep is so annoying and you think, ah, if only there was something that could help. Well, there's sleep and then there's Natrol Sleep. Natrol is America's number one drug-free sleep aid brand, helping you fall asleep faster and stay asleep longer. Natrol melatonin gummies are made with clean ingredients like 99% pure melatonin to work with your sleep cycle, helping you sleep better, making the next day your best day. Natrol, sleep tonight, live tomorrow. Click, tap, or visit natrol.com to shop now. This product helps with occasional sleeplessness. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent diseases. We are supported by Intuit, the technology platform that builds your financial confidence. There's some things that school doesn't really teach you, like how to handle the financial world. I mean, look, I did 16 years of school and I didn't have a single class on accruing debt or a hole that that puts you yeah, on. Yeah, they don't teach you that. No effort made whatsoever. If you want more financial knowledge, now is a great time to learn with Intuit for Education program. It has free, easy-to-use resources, like getting a car loan with credit 
Credit Karma simulations, understanding taxes with TurboTax lessons, and even learning to run a business with QuickBooks simulations. Check out Intuit's free resources today at intuit.com education. Intuit, that's I-N-T-U-I-T dot com slash education. We are supported by Taco Bell. Ooh. Oh, man. We often do two recordings a day, and we have this little nice lunch break that we enjoy, and we're always craving something really yummy. Yes, yeah, something fresh, something high quality, something like the all-new Cantina chicken menu from Taco Bell, which is mm. exactly that. Mm. It's so yummy. It has slow-roasted chicken, the pico, that purple cabbage, and an avocado verde salsa sauce. Oh, delicious. Outrageous. The new Cantina Chicken Tacos, Burrito, and Quesadilla are the perfect daytime choice. Try the new Cantina Chicken menu at Taco Bell now. Okay, I want to ask you two more fun questions before we let you go. Again, just so overjoyed to be talking to you. How are the sexual fantasies of men and women different? Ah, it used to be very hard to answer that question because you, all you could do is you ask people. And people lie, of course. Sure, um, sure. So you're kind of stuck. And then people started doing big data analyses on, uh, on Pornhub and other pornographic websites and then you learn a lot about what people want. And also you could use Google Analytics somehow to figure out who on the site. They're typically you can take a good guess as to their gender and their age, which I didn't, I didn't know. So one of the odd findings is there's a fairly high appetite often for violent and unpleasant uh, degrading porn, which surprisingly seems to be more common in women than in men. Which what? is very what? surprising. So that's, yeah. that's the twist. That's the, there's a guy, I'm blanking on his name, but he wrote a book called Everybody Lies. And he includes mm-hmm. a lot of analyses of these data, and it's very interesting. And this is a really puzzle because men are far more violent than women on average mm-hmm. and far more sexually violent than women on average. And so it's kind of a puzzle why women are drawn to these things. And like we were talking about before, often you don't know. We do things and we don't know why. And so one answer, I'm not sure this is the right answer. And actually, I end this section of the book saying, I just don't know. I talk about all the data and say, I just don't know. But one answer is because women are far more likely than men to be the target of sexual violence, at least outside of a prison, to be the target of sexual violence. They tend to think about it more and they tend to obsess about it. And sometimes it may show up just like I might go to a horror movie to see the most scariest thing to me that might manifest itself to some extent in sexual fantasy. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly I bet it's a, right. Yeah, I bet it's a multi-pronged thing, or I could at least imagine it being a multi-pronged thing. Well, that's yeah. a great explanation, and people do like to see their fears played out. That's pretty common. I'd also imagine far more women are suffering from that trauma, and I'm a sexual abuse survivor, so I have all these weird proclivities. We had this great doctor on, Dr. Katahakis, and I said, like, is it right or wrong? I mean, you're, you're now stuck with these things. Like, you didn't choose this experience, yet it now has put onto you certain desires and proclivities. And can we say it's wrong for people to be pursuing those? And she's, her answer was really clean, and I loved it, which was, it's not wrong at all unless you have to be secretive about it or you have shame about it. And so I do think because so many women are also survivors, like, it's who knows what the outcome of that is? I don't, that could also be in the stew. Yeah. 
In general, sexual desire, maybe because it's been sort of ghettoized in my field. We have an enormous number of people studying visual perception and uh, language development, but sexual desires is fairly understudied. There's a lot of mysteries. So the porn letter finds that people are drawn towards cartoon porn. Who are drawn to cartoon porn? Men and women on average. It's anime and other cartoon pornographic images and movies have a very high draw. And so does incest. And it's a real puzzle because evolutionary psych 101 says, you know, incest is bad, avoid incest. My sense for some of this is that it doesn't reflect sort of normal sexual appetites. It reflects two things. One thing is it reflects simply boredom with porn, mm-hmm. which is, I don't know, a 14-year-old guy might type into a web browser, naked person, and like, wow. But you get habituated, you get bored. The treadmill happens here too, and it pushes you to weird places. And then the second thing is there's a love of the perverse, of doing something simply because it's wrong. Yeah. And I think some of the appetite for things like revenge porn and pornography of involving people who are not willing participants is driven by the sense that this is wrong, and that's kind of why I'm going to do it. Mm. Mm. Do we have a conclusion about that? We just have an observation. Oh, we just have an observation. We just have an observation. Well, I yeah. think maybe part of it is it's doing something wrong that you can get away with. Whereas in life, if you're doing something wrong, there's a risk of a consequence. And so this is a way to kind of do that and not have one. Yes, the Michael Douglas movie Falling Down. It's like everyone desires to just go silverback because they've had enough. Yeah. And this is the difference between fantasies and reality, which is you were talking about sexual fantasies and how they're not necessarily wrong. And the thing about them is they'll take you to places which you would never go in real life. Because mm-hmm. there aren't real people involved. And the same true for revenge fantasies and often self-harm or suicidal fantasies. As long as they stay fantasies, they could just be, you know, your mind working out things. Yeah. Does having children improve our lives? So you had uh, Danny Kahneman on. And that Kahneman, who great figure in, in the field, presented some early evidence that actually people, when they're with their kids, are pretty miserable. And... <laughs> So you have these beepers go off, and then when a beeper goes off, like now we use iPhones, you say, you have to answer two questions. What are you doing and how happy you are? And it turns Mm. out when people are with friends or... Watching revenge porn. Watching revenge porn. They're pretty happy. But when people are with their young children, often they're not so happy. It's kind of boring and stressful and so on. But the paradox is that if you ask people... And our testament in different ways. People say kids are the great joy of their life. They, they give their lives meaning, they give their lives purpose. And so since Kahneman, there have been other studies, and things always get more complicated. So in some countries, parents are happier than non-parents. And these tend to be countries which have a lot of resources for childcare, a lot of time off, a lot of inexpensive daycare. Fathers tend to be happier being parents than mothers, because a lot of the labor goes to mothers. And I think most interesting to me, there's this difference which is, it's kind of a toss-up about whether kids give you pleasure or not. It's complicated. But kids pretty clearly give you a sense of purpose and meaning. Mm-hmm. And the ultimate. So, and so when psychologists say, oh, parents aren't as happy as people who choose not to have kids, and these are both different life choices which go in different directions, but parents don't necessarily say, oh, you're full of it. What they say is, my kids don't make me give me pleasure in the way that a hot fudge Sunday does the satisfaction they give is much deeper. And this is the sort of case you think about when you try to say, look, people are after more than one thing. Yeah. 
I want to know, because I'm so in awe of you, what subjects or fields do you suck at? Like, what baffles you? <laughs> we got to ask Bill Gates this, and he said, because this motherfucker will sit down and learn every single thing about waste treatment, like, better than the expert who wrote the book. He can do anything. It's. I hope you've seen the mind of Bill. Have you watched that, Doc? I haven't seen that yet. Oh, my God, it's incredible. The guy carries around a book bag the size of a refrigerator, and he reads all those books every week. It's insane, but... His was economics. He's like, that's the thing I just, you know, luckily I can talk to the best in the world, but even being able to talk to them, I really struggle with that. And I'm curious, what are your big gaps? How much time do you have? <laughs> I'll just give you, I'll just give you a few of my gaps. I was raised in, in Montreal and I took French all the time for hours and I am horrible at it. And I am horrible at every language. I barely speak English. I'm just like, <laughs> languages, I'm terrible at languages. Money terrifies me. I have an email from somebody about grants, and and it's, I haven't answered it for two weeks. I'm terrified to open it up. <laughs> and honestly, although I'm interested in neuroscience and the brain, I'm not a spatial thinker. I'm very much a more words than space. And so, what does spatial so, thinker mean? Could you just tell me? Spatial what Spatial thinker is somebody who could take a map of the brain and says, "Well, that part's the amygdala, and that part's the hippocampus, and that part's the central gyrus. There's the visual cortex, and get everything lined up in a three-dimensional space and know where everything is." And I can barely find my way. Very bad at spatial skills. So I'm bad at language, money, and space. Um, <laughs> And, and, good luck. And again, you know, again, I, just, yeah, good, I have found one profession in my life, you know, university <laughs> professor that for which I'd survive. If there was an apocalypse, I would be killed by the zombies first. Well, Paul Bloom, so delighted to talk to you. It's been literally, you were in our wish list with Kahneman right when we started. And uh, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. And you're prolific. So I hope you'll have another book and you'll yeah, come, come talk back. to us. Yeah. This has been an extraordinary amount of fun. This has been, oh. I, I'm, I'm very grateful that you had me on. Thank you so much. I'm going to go downstairs and work out to get a little suffering to kind of right the ship. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Good. Try to get some anxiety in there while you're at it. I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. Such a pleasure. Can't wait to talk to you again. And great look with the book. Everyone should read The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering in the Search for Meaning, which is out November 2nd. So get it. Oh, is it, well, there'll be an audible version. That's kind of my lane. Yes, there will be. And do you read your own books or do you have someone with a lumbering voice too? I get people with better voices than me to, to read the books. Um, so someone else with a much better voice is going to read my book. Okay, wonderful. So everyone look for The Sweet Spot. Such a blast. And we'll talk to you again soon. And thank you, guys. This was, this was a lot of fun. So oh, good. fun for us. Thank you. And now my favorite part of the show, the fact check with my soulmate, Monica Padman. What's going on? What is APL? Athletic Propulsion Lab. Oh. It's a brand. It's a trusted brand. It's not always play loosey-goosey. That's A-P-L-G. Oh. You're getting that confused. I always do. Yeah. yeah goose. Yeah, yeah. What's the Golden Goose brand? That's goose? fancy. Yeah, Goosey Gander. I had a pair yeah. of Goosey Ganders. You did? Really A while ago. Oh, my God. You were, mm. you were an early adopter. I was. I'm trying to think who had them. I, I of course, copied somebody. That's how the we world works. Do. You see a pair of shoes on someone, blows your mind, and then you begin the hunt. Speaking of that, a lot of people commented on my sweater. Oh, for sure. Of course they did. It's an incredible sweater. Hit them with it. In the picture that I was on your shoulders. And it's McLaren colors, right? This is the one? Um, Yeah. It, yeah. Has, some, it has lots of colors. Okay. 
I don't remember the brand. Oh, no. That's a terrible update. That's an anti-update. Yeah. I got it at a uh, Selfridges in London. Oh, well, that's you can start there. Nope. I got it at Liberty oh, in London. Okay. <laughs> Liberty Mutual of Omaha, London. But I appreciate that everyone liked that sweater. I like it a lot, too. Yeah, it's great. I really do think it has the blue in it. I think you're right. Yeah. You commented on I, it. I think I commented on on that day, the day of the photograph. Speaking of London, okay, oof, this is dangerous. Uh-oh. The whole one-second walk over to the attic, I was debating whether to bring this up. So I just read the New York Times, this article, and the, the headline's kind of like, you know, why is England doing bad again with COVID? Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, well, you know, let's, let's read this. And then it, it, it printed this graph in the graph, upon first glance, you're like, oh, man, they're fucking, they're out to sea. And the graph shows the U.S. and some other European countries. Uh-huh. And we're, we're, at, uh, we're at 30 cases per 100,000 people a day. And the Brits are at 60 cases <laughs> per 100,000. So that's six per 10,000. Yeah. That's 0.6 per thousand, 0.06 per hundred. This isn't even... A stat. But I'm sure what they're saying is they were really low and now it seems to be climbing. Not that it's a ton. But it's kind of like if there's, if, if, how about this? If someone has, if out of a billion people, someone has a penny and then someone has two pennies, you go, oh my God, someone has 200% as many pennies. But it's nothing. Neither people has pennies. I, I see what you're saying. I like really do. Sixty I, out of a hundred thousand. That's not even a. Like, there are more people fell out of their bathtub today out of a hundred thousand. I know. I just think it's a different way of looking at it. Like you're you're reading that as that they're saying they're doing bad. Right. Right. And I'm hearing that as as they're saying, okay, we have to monitor this because everything was low, really low for a while, and uh-huh. now maybe there's a gradual increase. Let's see. Has anything changed? Are they not getting boosters? Are they this? Like just keeping an eye on what's the change. Yeah, that's a that's a great defense of it. And then in the same article, there's a paragraph that, of course, I highlighted and copied, and I don't know what end I thought I was going to. But it said in there that Scotland and England have the same vax rate, and Scotland has mask mandate, and England doesn't, and there's no difference in their current rate. So it's like, well, that's a curious bit of data. And then I read a second, I read a follow-up one that was basically just a, a plea to humility, which is like, no one fucking knows still what's going on. Yeah. Go ahead, push back. No, this is I'm, what not, you're good at. I'm not pushing back on what you're talking about. I guess my question is, when you're looking at this and you're copying yeah. and you're pasting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you stop and think like, what is happening? Why am I? Why do I care? I'll tell you why I care because I don't like disinformation. That's the chip on my shoulder. I don't like being lied to. I don't like people with agendas. I don't like mass hysteria. I don't like emotionally led policies. So what I when I look at that whole thing, what I recognize is this doesn't really have anything to do with COVID. I don't believe it does. The fact that this would be a front page story on the biggest newspaper in America to report that 60 out of 100,000 people are getting something, that's not, you, objectively, that's not a, a front page worthy story. So my, my conclusion is we are projecting onto this topic 
our relationship issues. <laughs> like as humans and as, as countrymen and even as participants in a world uh, order, this is this is the loading or unloading the dishwasher in a, in a relationship. And then all of this other emotional baggage is getting projected onto it. Like is this pathogen bearing the weight of a much bigger debate that's on our minds or a much bigger grievance? And it's it's less and less fitting. To me, like when I look at... 60 cases in 100,000, I go, well, this is less and less fitting um, an appropriate amount of news coverage, an appropriate amount of thought, an appropriate amount of a lot of stuff. Uh, so it must represent something else. I don't know if it's like individual freedom versus group, group freedom or I don't know. I mean, that's my hunch is it's going to line up the same way all these things line up. Like you are either someone who believes in individual rights or you believe in, you know. Well, yeah, that's the whole mass thing in general. <sighs> yeah. So when I think everyone's like kind of chasing their tail and maybe I feel like I'm caught up in the tail chasing, yeah, I feel this absurd uh, calling to to say stop. This has become so opaque and I don't think we're even worried about what we claim to be worried about. Mm. <sighs> I, yeah, uh. I don't know what to say. A ton of people have died of this thing. It's a big, it's a big deal. It's a, it was it's an a, enormous deal. And there's, we have, we can't say it's over. It's not over. If we are not monitoring it, there will be more variants. There will be more, like, it's not something we can just decide is, is done. And then that's that. I mean, we can move forward. We are, I mm -hmm. think. I mean, I'm at restaurants. I'm at, we went to F1, but it's still something to be aware of. It doesn't bother me that it's something to be aware of. Let's put it this way. Um, I, and I wish I could look up some things, but I, 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 I promise to. I'll look up some things that have a rate of 60 per 100,000. And I promise if those things were on the front page of the newspaper, you'd be like, what is happening? Like 60 out of 100,000 people are dying of falling on brooms in London, but only 30 are falling on brooms and dying in the US. And you would just go like, that's crazy that that's a front page story on the New York Times. This gets so complicated because I think everyone should independently have thoughts, right? Yeah, like yeah. not be swayed by your community or whatever. But I do think it's worth noting like what we say about Sam and Brett, which is like they have what they believe are independent thoughts. Mm -hmm. But when you map those thoughts onto groups – who are the groups that agree? Mm -hmm. And are do you feel aligned with the group? In, are yeah. Uh huh. Totally agree. You're more inclined to look around at your bedfellows and kind of make a verdict based on that, which I I would agree with most times. But what, what I what I would suggest is I don't ha even have bedfellows. Like I'm critical of the left and the right on this whole topic. A, a really interesting part of the subsequent article I read was talking about how we can't get out of the villain hero paradigm. It's how our brains work, right? So all of our stories kind of con consist of a, of a hero and a villain. And um, the article was saying that psychologists looked at the way people talk about sports athletes, right? Basically, virtue is supposed to win out in all stories. Uh -huh. That's the bottom line. It's like the 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 villain through uh, he or she's moral failings will eventually unravel themselves and the person with virtue will rise. And they apply this bizarre 
blueprint to athletes. And it's it's funny because they, they point out all the times they ignore when it doesn't fit the story. Like where the person with no, no virtue who got a DUI, who had a batting slump and wasn't clutch. Mm. And so these people get labeled chokers, people who choke or clutch people. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And how that ignores that the people that were chokers often go on to be very clutch players yeah, and win championships. But yes. it doesn't, it no longer fits the story yes. of their moral failings causing this, right? And so it was saying that this COVID thing is very much the same thing, which is there's got to be a hero and a villain. And if you're on the left, the villain is someone who won't wear a mask. And if you're on the right, the villain is somebody who's wearing their mask in their car by themselves or whatever the thing is they think is absurd. And it's just inadequate. It's not a real take on any of it. So it's like the shaming and the villains and the heroes. And I'm a hero because I'm double vaxxed and I wear a mask inside my car. Or I'm a hero because I'm fighting the Gestapo that's forcing me to wear a mask and I'm a patriot. All these things, they're, they're, they're rubbish on both sides is yeah, what I'm yeah. saying. And I just think we're being victimized by this paradigm we love to live in, which is like hero and villain. I get that. Yeah. But I also, like, I think there's a middle. I don't walk around and I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm double vaxxed and right. I'm special. Yeah. Or I'm doing the right thing. I'm like, yeah, I did the thing I was supposed to do. I wear the mask and mm -hmm. that's fine. You cannot take a pride in either thing. You can just like do the thing. Yeah, for sure. And some significant percentage is likely doing that. Yeah, I hope. But, but the bottom line is when we, into, we went to England, it, that this whole thing that we have literally doesn't exist there. They don't have a political division on the topic. And it was so interesting to be in that world because without the political division, people literally just don't talk about it because there's no, it's not a story. Yeah. It's like they all got vaxxed. They did what they were going to do. They're 80% vaxxed and they don't wear masks. And that's, that's the whole thing. Yeah. And no one's talking about it. No one's like, a, a, you know, some gargoyle who's doing this or some uh, virtue signaler who's doing that. And it's just to step out of it and to recognize totally. how story-driven it is here definitely, is what in ignites my fervor about the topic. It is very particular to here, but it is interesting seeing all these different places because, yeah, here it's so... It, it is it's so, left and right, man. It's so political. Thing. In England, there's nothing. <laughs> right. And then when we were in Paris, because we were in London mm -hmm. for so long and I, we were not wearing masks and mm -hmm. we were just going along with the thing. Yeah. I would walk into places in Paris and immediately it was like, do you have a mask? Do you have a mask? Yeah. And, but that, they weren't political either. True, true, true. They yeah, were yeah. just yeah, that's, following a rule. Yeah, they just have a commonly held belief in a certain policy. Exactly. Like, but no one's like pushing back on it. They're just, yeah. that's just what they're doing. And, and I just got to say, I find it embarrassing. I love this country more than anything, but it is one of the few things I find really embarrassing about yeah. this country is that we're all so fucking anchored in our political identity that nothing, no topic can slide through without getting sucked into the gravitational pull of the left or the right. I just find it very frustrating and maddening. Yeah, I mean, I I, I do too. It's a bummer, but it's there's a flip side to the coin. We have opinions on everything. It's not just politics. We are a very opinionated group of people. We have thoughts on things. We want to expound upon things. We want to push things forward. Like that, there's good stuff to it as well, but 
Yeah, and, and I love right. that aspect. That's the Israeli thing, the challenger, the person that feels like their opinion is as valid. My issue is I'm not seeing that many individual opinions. I see a left opinion and a right opinion. I'm not like seeing any variety within that spectrum. Yeah. I think our, our, our thought in this country is a little less independent than we think it is. I think yeah. it's pretty much lockstep with what other, whatever political party we think we're in or socioeconomic bracket we might think we're in. You know, like there's these pockets that really do hijack any real independent analysis. Well, I mean, Paul says that in this episode, we maybe more than anything want to be liked within our group. Yes, it's the most important thing. So, yeah. But, you know, we need a we need a check valve for that, in my opinion. I just think like knowing that about ourselves, we need a little more checks and a little more humility, myself included, which is just like things aren't even remotely approaching certainties <laughs> that are being spouted as no, certainties they're not. around this every corner. All, it's also individual. I am not someone who is opposed to rules at mm-hmm. all. I've followed them my whole life. I'm totally fine following them. Yeah. I, I like them in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so to me, I'm not going to feel like an idiot in 10 years if they're like, actually those masks, they didn't work. Right. I won't care. I'm right. like, okay, but they didn't hurt me. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they could have helped. So I'd much rather do that, follow a rule, not really think too hard about it. Yep. And for other people, I think yourself included, uh-huh. you, you, you're way more wary of rules. Yes, and I will just say, because people are regularly manipulating things to push an agenda. Let's just take, you know, the Trump getting peed on in a hotel by a hooker in the dossier. I was always like, that's just such horseshit. It's such horse. There's no way he was getting peed on by a hooker, right? But I'm getting that information from uh, a Scotland Yard operative vetted by the CIA. So I think it's healthy to go, that sounds a little preposterous. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I I think there's a great deal of agenda-driven information dumped on our laps. And I do think you have to ask yourself if that seems plausible kind of regularly in life. Right, but also what's the cost? So like the cost of the Trump thing, there is a cost. There's a huge one, yeah. Yes, and so the cost of wearing a mask to me is zero. So I totally agree with you, except for when you and I had to actually be in a mask 12 hours. Like we had to fly. Yeah. And we were in that mass for 12 hours. And so when I'm in the mass for 12 hours, my skin gets all red and peely around the whole area. The mask is on my face. And I have great lungs. I don't know what it's like to have any kind of diminished breathing on top of the reduction of the oxygen. But I don't have a job where I have a mask on for 12 hours a day. If I did, I bet I would feel much differently than I do about it. I feel the same way you do, which is like... Yeah, who knows, it might prove to be ineffective, but with the chance that it could have been effective, why not do it because it's not a huge deal? But again, when I wear one for 12 hours, I I have to be honest with myself and I go, no, I couldn't wear one 48 hours a a week. Mm -hmm. I I couldn't. Yeah. I'd have to quit whatever job required me to do that. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm not telling people what to do. You have to just do a cost-benefit analysis and also understand, like, what are you personally bringing to the table? Is it your dad was controlling and so this, you know, is sure. it, is is it is just it indignation? Like, yeah. Yeah, like, what is happening, really? Uh-huh. And and maybe, 
even if you recognize it doesn't matter, you still have those opinions. Or you could work through all, I think I've done a great job working through all of it because I have complied with everything. And then on the other side of having worked through most of it, also going, oh yeah, I couldn't wear this thing 12 hours a day. I have a new kind of sympathy for people who are asked at a restaurant that's already fucking hot and yeah, shitty yeah. and they or, their skin's already on fire from just working over a stove. Yeah. Then you had that mask, like, I, you know, I don't know what that experience is like and it's possible I would be like, I don't fucking, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not in that position, so I can't really, I can only speak for me. Yeah, podcaster extraordinaire. Madeline Paddlin. Matt, oh, yeah, Madeline Paddlin. Danny called me Madeline. Uh-huh. As a joke. Sure. He knew my name. Yes, very well. <laughs> and and then it turned into Madeline Paddlin. Which is a great name. Um. So you got your tattoos. I got my tattoos. They're finally starting to fade a bit, which makes me happy. They're really uh, cool. Thank you so much. Yeah, the shading's starting to die back a bit, which I like. Because at first, it just looked like I had a dirt smear all over my wrist because well, of the shading. Happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's to be expected. Yeah. But yeah, just actually this morning, I realized like some pieces had flaked off of the shading. I was like, okay, now we're settling into something mm, that I Exciting. I think, yeah. I like it. You were in there for so long. For Yes. For you, it was um, a whole revelation. You didn't realize how long they took. Yeah. My man, Freddie, at Shamrock took his fucking time, and I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, I think I was in there for what like I didn't Six hours Yeah, five, five hours maybe. Yeah. Some of it, you know, was tinkering with the sizes and putting on the – they put a transfer on you first, right? Uh-huh. I've talked about this experience when I said I was buying the engagement ring and I had this very visceral feeling as I was handing the person the card. And I was like, what is this feeling? Like it was so specific. And I mold on it for like five minutes. I'm like, oh my God, I know what it is. It's when they put the transfer on and you have basically a purple outline of it and you stand in front of the mirror and you look at it and you go, yeah. You're making a permanent decision. <laughs> yeah, I think it's so rare in That's your life you actually make a permanent decision. Wow, yeah. That it gives you this crazy specific shock of something. I don't know what chemicals. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, I got it less this time. Good. Which is weird. Well, I'm, I'm sure because they're Lincoln and Delta. And probably because I've already done it a bunch of times at this point. I do have to... You're not going to like this. Oh, okay. Okay. Right. But because you, you said once you get them, yeah. you don't notice them. You don't think about it again. So you won't regret it. Whatever. Yeah. Callie's getting a tattoo removed currently. And it's not a tattoo that it, that's like Is there a on her back. Or yeah, it's not offensive. <laughs> um, no, she just doesn't like it. She doesn't like the way it looks in pictures. She just doesn't like oh, it. Oh, okay. So she's getting it removed. Where's it at? Her ankle. It's a compass. It's a cute tattoo. She got it in college. And uh, yeah, she she huh. she doesn't like it. Um, what else was I gonna say? Oh, Halloween wrap up. You did your hayride. Oh man, yeah, the hayride. Um, it evolved a little bit this year. It got a little better, I would argue. It was I, so fun. I spent more time on the trailer. First of all, I also learned last year. I got too many hay bales. Okay, yeah, sure. Everyone was sitting on top of hay bales, and then it was uh, the trailer was both top-heavy, and, and now just people are in danger of toppling out of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we went with less hay bales, so every, everything got lower. And then I had, because I, had, I didn't have full hay bales when I broke up all the hay, I had to put basically uh, walls on the inside of the trailer so the hay wouldn't dump out everywhere. Yeah. So once I put these little walls up, which I repurposed some old shingles that had come off, some old uh, 
mock slate shingles, uh-huh. got them on the trailer. Then I painted the outside of those orange. Yeah. So there's a little pumpkin flare. It was really <laughs> cute, really fun. I'll brag for you. Okay. Your driving skills were fantastic. Oh my gosh. Thank Everyone you. was commenting. Thank you so much. We even much. had a big cheer at one point because you it made me happy every time. Turned. I don't I don't know how you did it. The 180 or the turn into the alley? Because as the driver, the, the, the alley is the trickiest. Yeah. yeah. The, it, the 180, though, you came like a half a centimeter from a car at yeah. one of those. And I did 12 times that night. And Danny Ricardo was oh. <laughs> next to me and was like, he won't make it. And then you did. Oh, thank you. That's a big thank compliment. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate you telling me that. You've been really gracious in, in showering me with praise for my driving of the— I, w- I was impressed. Uh, I have it, to give it up. This year, I decided—last year, I basically drove the pod around a lot, then got out, then went trick-or-treating door-to-door with the kids on foot, and then at the end gave a couple rides to neighbors. Yeah. This year, I was trying to get the neighbors in right away. So yeah. I basically did a loop <laughs> with you guys. They, You guys got out, and then I started forcing neighbors in. You and then did. I just did the neighbors most of the night. You, it was a service to the neighborhood. <laughs> It was really sweet. Every time we would see it, I was like, oh, my gosh, so many people are in back. They love it. They're so happy. Thank you. And so you and a couple other people were nice enough to congratulate my driving, which everyone knows is a huge thing for me. I have to say out loud, the most stressful part of the whole experience is not at all driving the trailer through the tight neighborhood with alleys. Uh-huh. It's keeping the playlist going oh, while sure. I'm driving because you go on Spotify and they've got a great 2021 Halloween party mm, mix okay. and it's fucking great. Yeah. But even a great one has some stinkers in it for me. So I'm like, I got to skip songs. Okay. I got to make sure we don't hear wow. the Yes. The, my main <laughs> stress that whole night is just keeping <laughs> that playlist rocking and not repeating Thriller too yes. many times. Yep. Yeah. I think we played it three times. Yeah. You know, you're going to repeat it. Well, obviously, but you don't want to hit critical mass. You don't want to go to the well too much on it. You know, every time the thing's passing, you don't want to hear Thriller. That's right. So that was the part where, you know, quite often turning in the alley, I am just nose right in the phone trying to find the next song. Yeah. (laughs) I'll show you how to make a playlist next year. Okay. You know, it's funny because people are asking, like, what can we bring over? What can we bring over? And I was saying nothing, you know, nothing. And then it occurred to me, I probably should have told Ryan, like, Ryan, make a playlist. He would have loved that. that's his lane. He He really knows how to keep everyone party pumped. <laughs> that might be my request for next year is that he make a, a Okay, I like that. We're saying it on here, Ryan. Yeah, 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 Ryan. But, yeah, man, it was a fucking awesome it Halloween. Really Holy fun. smokes. I, uh, I couldn't believe how much fun it was. Um, okay, a couple facts. <sighs> okay. Okay, so he said sociopath is a more polite term for psychopath. Oh. Like, because you said, what's the difference? He said, it's really just a polite term. But according to the internet, psychopaths tend to be more manipulative, can be seen by others as more charming, lead a semblance of a normal life, and minimize risk in criminal activities. Sociopaths tend to be more erratic, rage-prone, and unable to lead as much of a normal life. They do sound the so same. So to me, it sounds like a psychopath is a sociopath with skills. Like yeah. empathy skills and True. It's charming. like a step up. Yeah. It's just like they're charming sociopaths, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. Neither give a fuck about the ethical disasters that result from their behaviors. No, they don't. We talk about Kahneman a little bit and and you say narrative self and you said he doesn't call it that. 
He calls it remembering self versus experiencing self. Mm, Just, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I looked at most meaningful jobs. Oh, good. This would be a great roadmap for mm-hmm. any collegiate listeners. Okay, one is clergy. He said that, and that checks out. I don't. I mean, I don't like that one. Well, why? Well, does is it clergy like in the Roman Catholic sense where they're celibate? I don't know. Because that. That, to me, is one of the weirdest, most gruesome perversions of any group think we've ever had. That somehow some group of people should be celibate because that's going to make them closer to the Lord who designed us to sexually procreate. I, I, it doesn't make a lick of sense to me. It just seems like a weird punishment. Like, we're, we're, we're making them prove their purity. Yeah, I think it's also that they don't get swayed by human temptation. But but, but yeah. then we look at the outcome of it, and it's like a disproportionately, inordinately high rate of pedophilia well, of and stuff. Yeah, yeah, so like the outcome is pathological. Yeah. Okay, sorry. All right. All right. Okay, <laughs> two English language and literature teachers, post-secondary. Post-secondary. So that would be like professors? Yeah. English professors, huh? That's yeah. cool. If you love literature enough to make it through a PhD— and get yourself a college teaching job, you're likely to feel pretty good about your work. Um, oh, you're not going to like this. Uh-oh. Directors, religious activities, and education. Another religious job rests at the top of Payscale's list of most meaningful jobs. Directors of religious activities and education aren't ordained clergy, but they oversee programs for congregation members. These workers only earn a typical salary of $37,000. Uh, so it's definitely not done for love of money. But since 96% of these workers say their job makes the world a better place, they definitely seem to get something out of it. You know, if I was a cynical listener, I'd be like, hey, Shepard, how much data do you fucking need? I know. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I'm inclined to explain that by going, anytime you make a choice over money for good, yeah. as long as you believe what you're doing is good, it's going to lead to meaning and purpose. Yeah, that's what this yeah, is. Whether that's a you know fool's errand or but not. But we're not saying anything's objective. Meaningfulness yeah. has, is not objective. You're absolutely right. Thank you. Surgeons. Mm, arrogant psychopaths, surgeons. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sociopath, psychopath. Surgeon. <laughs> Um, education administrators, elementary and secondary school, radiation therapists. That makes Ah, sense. You know, I deal with a ton of x-ray givers, radiologists. Oh my. And they are, I will say as a lot, they're a chipper group. I I always love interacting with them. And and again, I'm, I'm with them a lot. I get a couple dozen x-rays a year. They're best friends. (laughs) You know, I'm always trying to trick them into giving me the prognosis because they, they, know. they know. Yeah, like yeah, they, they can know. read a, an x-ray better than any mm-hmm. doctor probably. Mm-hmm. And I'm always like, well, is it broke? And, they and they're like, well, it. the doctor's going to come in there. They have like a lot of ethics. Oh, they wow. Won't, they won't tell me. And they know. It must be so tempting to know the answer and to bite Good your for tongue. Them. They're like the opposite of Eric. Of me. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine knowing the answer for something and not forcing the person to listen. <laughs> yeah, the patient's like, I'll wait for the doctor. No, I know. No, I'm your doctor. <laughs> I'd be the worst radiologist (laughs) in the history of radiology. (laughs) Yeah, you could go see him, waste some time if you want, or I can tell you right now, you don't need shit. There's nothing here. Not even a hairline fracture. Oh, my God. Go back to skateboarding, young man. (laughs) Are you sure? It really hurts. Yeah. Really, really hurts. That's just soft tissue uh, damage. Uh, I also kind of 
as a hobby. I'm into soft tissue stuff. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, endo and, exo, <laughs> and, and exoskeleton, really. Okay. Chiropractors, psychiatrists, anesthesiologists, um, rehabilitation counselors. Mm, okay. Occupational therapists, kindergarten teachers, epidemiologists. Hmm. When was the study taken? To be fair, a lot of these say tie next to them. Oh, okay. I didn't make that clear. But, okay. Um, a lot of these are tied. When was the study? Let's see. Can't be found. Can't I just wonder if that epidemiologist thing has changed during our oh, last pandemic. You know what? Or maybe, mo- maybe, maybe it's more. Maybe more. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So hard to know. We'll never know because I don't know how to look up uh, dates. Yeah. This. It's too hard. Does cutting, this was an interesting article, does cutting release a biochemical reaction? According to this American Psychological Association, APA. Uh Uh-huh. This is who, L. Ron Hubbard. This was his his arch nemesis was the The APA. APA. Yeah, he tried to get Dianetics like uh, signed off on by them. And they were like, there's not a single experiment in here. And so he sent a team, he found out that they were not registered as a trademark. So he somehow oh. had this ploy to send people to Switzerland to register the APA in Switzerland. Oh and God. it was like this covert operation. There was a boat they had to get on. It was a whole God. caper. Wowie. Yeah, he did not like the APA. Fact check should just be called additional facts. Additional unsubstantiated <laughs> facts. <laughs> okay, I'm going to read some of this. Okay. A phenomenon called pain offset relief. According to this concept, virtually everyone experiences an unpleasant physical reaction to a painful stimulus. Removing the stimulus does not return the individual to their pre-stimulus state. However, rather, it leads them into a short but intense state of euphoria. Mm. Using a technique called pain offset relief conditioning, those scientists also found that if you paired the pain with the stimulus over time, people would react more favorably to the pain because they had learned to associate it with pain relief. Mm-hmm. For example, when researchers shocked rats and then presented them with a pleasant odor, over time the rats began seeking out the smell. Ah, I wish I could remember where I read that thing. Yeah. Yeah, this isn't one of my armchair theories. This is something I read. You read it. Did you read it in the cover of New York Times? Probably. It's the only thing I read, even though it angers me half the time. It's pretty funny. But half the time you love it. That's true. That's true. I love it. It's a great newspaper. But, yeah. It's just, it's a group of humans. They're a, they're an in-group, out-group. Like, they're a group of humans that sit in the same building, and they they hash stuff out to see which side of the right and wrong they're on. Yeah. I personally think they do a pretty good job of being impartial, but but every, they're always Well, they had on the cover the of their own newspaper this year in, I want to say March. It was a meta study done by a scientist that looked at, metadata from all of the COVID information, right? Mm-hmm. So there's like positive and there's negative. There's, you know, progress is made here. There's yeah. a spike there. And they found that in general in the scientific journals, is which thing we're supposed to trust the most, it was it was 50-50, positive and negative. And they found that the Times reporting was 80% negative. Mm. So they, and then they spent a, a whole cover section admitting that they were uh, definitely to the, fear-mongering yeah. side of this scale. But the fact that they printed that to uh-huh. me means... It's encouraging. Yeah. It's what makes me stick with the thing. But it also yeah. lets me know sometimes I'm reading that paper and they're off base. Like they're yeah. they're 
They're inflating the something by t- almost a factor of two. Yeah. Okay. He talks about a book called Everybody Lies, but he didn't know the or he forgot the author. And the author is Seth Stevens Davidowitz. Oh wow. Yeah. Davidowitz. Everybody it's lies. Italian and Polish. Oh my God. Ding ding ding. Everybody lies. We're oh. just talking. Oh my God. Ding ding wow. ding. The New York Times lies. Everybody d- that we are not saying that. <laughs> Everybody lies. Big data, new data, and what the internet can tell us about who we really are. Mm-hmm. Um that is all. That's everything. That's everything. <laughs> Correct. Um, I love you. I love you. And I love Paul Bloom, man. Oh. What a fucking we didn't really talk about him, but that's kind of <laughs> what we do. Yeah, Sorry. That's what I, do. I think I probably so said great. it on the podcast. He's one of the people that make me nervous. Yeah, but you did great. Like I'm scared to talk to him a little bit. So he was so easy to talk to though. He was. Yeah. And I'll get back to everyone on the sweater brand. Yeah. That's TBD. And I, I had something too. I was, oh, I was going to look up stuff that's uh, at a rate of 60 per 100,000 okay. just for some comparisons. <laughs> <laughs> Love you. Bye. We are supported by Intuit the technology platform that builds your financial confidence. There's some things that school doesn't really teach you, like how to handle the financial world. I mean, look, I did 16 years of school and I didn't have a single class on accruing debt or a hole that that puts you in. Yeah, they don't teach you that. No effort made whatsoever. If you want more financial knowledge, now is a great time to learn with Intuit for Education program. It has free, easy-to-use resources, like getting a car loan with credit karma simulations, understanding taxes with TurboTax lessons, and even learning to run a business with QuickBooks simulations. Check out Intuit's free resources today at intuit.com slash education. Intuit, that's I-N-T-U-I-T dot com slash education.